0: Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Two weeks ago, allies of Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro were handed a stinging defeat in the first round of elections for mayors and 57 different municipalities across the country. Candidate Bolsonaro, actually supported, faced crushing, crushing, and humiliating defeats with opponents getting well over the 50% of the votes needed to avoid this weekend's runoff elections. Then, this past weekend, as I was saying, Brazilians returned to the polls for the second round of voting to determine who the leaders of Brazil's cities would be, including its two largest cities, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. We'll find out what happened in the first round of elections that shook Brazil's politics at their roots, and then what happened this past weekend and what it means for the future of the Bolsonaro movement and Brazil when we have the return of correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. Brian has been contributing to This Is Hell for several years now, and we have dozens of our conversations with Brian online right now at our website, thisishell.com, including our most recent from back in July when we honored the life and commemorated the passing of the late great Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show. We also talked about warnings former President Lula was making that the actions of current president president Jair Bolsonaro could actually lead to war prior to that appearance Brian was on back in mid April when we discussed what coronavirus was like at the time in Brazil during a series of interviews we did talking to contributors correspondents and past guests about what COVID-19 was like wherever they lived just as the world was facing the beginning of the outbreak you can follow Brazil on Twitter er, Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Brian M. Telesur. And you can find BrazilWire online at BrazilWire.com and Telesur English at Telesur English.net. We want to thank listener Ivar, who suggested we get Brian back on the show to give us an update on what is happening in Brazil. We're also going to have this week's Hangover Cure, Rotten History, and we are announcing one of the titles on our annual list of books to be featured here on This Is Hell, our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020. We will be naming one book to make the list on today's show and on all of our final 12 episodes of 2020 here at ThisIsHell.com. Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, we will be announcing one Another one of our favorite 12 books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020 What better way to celebrate the holidays than with 12 books from hell I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live-streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show Well, it's Monday, so it must be Daphne Augustin. Daphne, how was your weekend?
1: Hey, um, for Thanksgiving I repotted a plant and I watched way too much The Wire (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> have you ever watched The Wire before or are you just going through it for the first time?
1: No, it's the second time, but it's been many years.
0: I have never watched one second of The Wire. Why? I don't know. I have no idea why I missed it at the time when it came out. I don't know why I haven't gone back to watch it, watch it once at least. I have that uh, new John Brown miniseries sitting on my DVR waiting for me at home sat through Chernobyl those are the only things that I actually get through I, I gotta go back and watch The Wire correct? <laughs> correct? am I correct? I do have to go back and watch The Wire it's worth it?
1: yeah right. definitely season one two three four
0: okay <laughs> my weekend of pretending everything was normal went as well as can be expected well being knee deep and denialism about you know Native American genocide, the pandemic infecting and killing at daily near-record levels, and the virus being the only thing that can slow down the destruction of the planet caused by humans burning fossil fuels and climate change. Yeah, my weekend was pretty busy trying to maintain the denialism I need to keep myself from going into a deep downward spiral of depression. So my weekend, it was nice. We had duck. See, we told you, this is hell. More importantly, Daphne... What's this week's question from Hell for our listeners? Uh,
1: This week's question from Hell is, what's the smart money play in 2021?
0: What's the smart money play in 2021? I think Alex is looking for financial advice. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question Hell wins. Well, your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you we got nothing So thank you for all of your support You can leave your answer To this week's question from hell At our Facebook page You can tweet it to us You can email it to us But we must have your answer By the end of Thursday's show When we are announcing This week's winner Daphne will be sharing your answers To this week's question from hell Following our guest Again the question from hell is What's the smart money play in 2021? Thanks to everyone Who went to thisishell.com And clicked on support Over the weekend If you go to thisishell.com And click on support You can see all the ways You can help out your friends here at This Is Hell, including how to get any and all of our This Is Hell swag. Thanks for their support. This weekend goes out to Gidden and Jane, and thanks for the tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. From Brett and Magnificent Me Thanks to all of you for your incredible support Again, if you want to support This Is Hell And be thanked on the show Just like Gidden and Jane and Brett and Magnificent Me Where all you have to do is go to thisishell.com And click on support Brave enough to be streaming live Dumb enough to be goofy Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part Of your weekly hangover cure This is hell And Daphne has this week's hangover cure
1: This week's hangover cure is Take a breather The Men's Health article, The Six Best Ways to Ease a Hangover, quotes George Koob, PhD, director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health, advising, don't have another drink, you will just prolong the agony. The story states, lightning hangovers to many withdrawal symptoms, Koob debunks the hair of the dog myth that suggests that a small bit of the same alcohol that exacerbated your condition is the antidote for your hangover. Director Kube, directo cube says it will backfire that makes this week's hangover cure take a breather
0: so yeah that's not the greatest hangover cure I do all the researching and writing for the hangover cure Daphne does the beautiful reads of the hangover cure but uh, the reason that I'm sharing that is this week's hangover cure is men's health magazine sucks the, the, the six cures they say are the best way to cure a hangover are the stupidly phrased take a breather take a breather Instead of just saying, don't drink afterwards, or no hair of the dog, the headline was take a breather for not drinking, as well as the pedestrian remedies of ibuprofen, which is not a good hangover cure and is bad for your liver after drinking. Drink water was another one of the Men's Health magazine suggestions. That's just revolutionary. I've never heard that before. Take nutrients, eat carbs, and exercise. In other words, a copy and paste of a million other articles on hangover cures. Somebody actually got paid to write this, and that's the only good thing that came out of this information. A writer got paid for writing. Oh, how I loathe Men's Health Magazine, and you can throw in Men's Journal while you're at it. Complete trash. If it's got men's in the title, avoid that periodical at all opportunities. Putting profits before people Since 1996, this is hell And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model Of putting people before profits You can go to thisishell.com and click on support Find all the ways to help out your friends here At Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell Sure, you can get the new Grand black This Is Hell winter cap, face mask, t-shirt, trucker's cap Or tote bag Or the enamel steel camping This Is Hell coffee mug To show your support Or the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive Containing dozens of interviews from the past 20 years all which make all make great holiday gifts, but you can also become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell, then tune in there every Friday morning to hear the show, which is podcast shortly after at the same place. And you can now get over 150 Patreon podcasts right now because we've been doing these for a few years. So they've been archived and it's like an entire additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you can't find anywhere else but on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, I declared war on Christmas. I joined the media war on Thanksgiving and started my own wars against all the rest of the holidays. As they are mired in the denialism of American exceptionalism, we also continued our series of interviews from right around 12 years ago, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, to remind us all of what people were thinking and saying the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president, to save us from what we were told were the horrors. Of the Republican Party and conservatism So we shared our interview From just a few days after President Obama Was inaugurated back in January Of 2009 When we spoke with former Democratic Congresswoman From New York, Elizabeth Holtzman Elizabeth was on the House Judiciary Committee That impeached President Richard Nixon. She just posted the Nation article holding Bush accountable. Obama cannot let former Bush administration officials get away with breaking the law without violating his own oath of office. That's something that Joe Biden should be considering right now when it comes to Trump administration officials who did break the law while in office. She, Elizabeth, also had co-written the book The Impeachment of George W. Bush, a Practical Guide for Concerned Citizens. So to hear that, all you have to do is subscribe at this is at patreon.com slash this is hell. And you're going to want to do that. You're going to want to subscribe because this Friday on Patreon, we are continuing our series of interviews from shortly after Barack Obama became president to remind us all of what happened the last time a member of the Democratic Party was elected president. And this Friday, we'll be reminding you how President Obama took the bold move of closing, shutting down, having the bravery. To end what was happening at Guantanamo Bay, which is such a brave move by President Obama that he didn't actually close Guantanamo Bay, despite the Obama administration and many in the media repeatedly telling us at the time that he had actually closed the likely site of countless war crimes. By the way, another person, uh, another reason to subscribe on Patreon is it is the only time of the week you get to hear producer Alex Jerry. During the last few weeks, Alex has been asking me questions about the that week's shows that we can only ask behind the paywall of Patreon. For instance, I made a reference on the show last week about knowing someone who was part of a potential project to broadcast a corporate logo on the moon as an advertisement. I can't really say much about it on air or off, but... I did add a hilarious detail, the company that was going to put their trademark logo on the lunar surface for all of us to see every time we looked up at the moon. But you can only hear our interview with one of the people who impeached Nixon and why we should have impeached President George W. Bush and held him accountable for his crimes, as well as my declaration of war on all holidays. and. Behind the scenes details about what happens here on the show every week by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell And I want to thank our newest Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell Matt H. Matt, thanks for joining us on Patreon Capitalism is the virus and this is hell And with that tagline, what better book to begin Our list of favorite books to be featured here on this is hell in 2020 Then, The Enchantments of Mammon, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity, by scholar in humanities Eugene McCarraher, who was on our show back on June 16th of this year. Eugene asks the question, what if economics is as faith-based as any religion? Naomi Klein has called today's capitalist economics the contemporary religion of unfettered free markets. And Eugene argues economics is the scripture of our current faith, the religion of mammonism, which Eugene describes as the attribution of ontological power to money, the metaphysical understanding of our nature of being as defined by money and of existential sublimity to its possessors. All that means money has been raised to the exalted level of any religious faith, which makes our first book on the list of our 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity, by Eugene McCarraher, and you can find that interview now at thisishell.com, either by searching on the author's name, or just search on the word mammon, because spelling McCarraher, is about as difficult as it is to pronounce This Is Hell the last place where you thought you would get a good gift suggestion Coming up, we'll find out what happened when Brazilians went to the polls this weekend. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell The planet's on fire, so yes This Is Hell Two weeks ago, Brazilians went to the polls and gave President Jair Bolsonaro a stunning defeat. This weekend, Brazilians returned for runoff elections that many predicted would mean more defeats for Bolsonaro, his government, and his movement. Here to tell us what happened two weeks ago to set up this past weekend's voting, correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and you can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M Telesur. Good morning, Brian. How are you this crazy morning after a wild night of vote counting?
2: Chuck, good to hear from you. I'm, I'm okay. You know, my father was uh, commissioner of economic development in Chicago under the mayor of Washington administration. And I get really, really like super, almost like rain man about city government and city elections. And so I've been up all night, crunching numbers, making statistics, Probably not even making that much sense anymore, frankly. So I'll do my best.
0: (laughs) Well, let's. I want to talk about the municipality election situation, and as as far as how important they are, you know, here in the United States, if you know the mayor of Chicago is from the Democratic Party, that really doesn't have any impact on the Democratic Party nationally, or you know, it's not. It's not like uh, President Trump was waiting around to see how the election was going to turn out in Austin, Texas or Asheville, North Carolina. They're not The two parties aren't sitting around waiting for municipal election returns to come in. And international news media doesn't cover them that way either. So how important are municipal elections? Are these 57 municipal elections that went into runoff this weekend?
2: Well, uh, they're really important because Brazil has a multi-party system. And so the dynamics always changing. I mean, like... Okay, Trump's sitting there on his gold toilet, you know, he's probably not th- wondering whether the Democrats are going to lose Chicago, you know, or, or Cleveland or wherever. I mean, like in most cities in the U.S., it's usually either Democrats or Republicans. There might be a few exceptions. But in Brazil, there's a constant battle for power. And municipal governments control big budgets— um, a municipal government is sort of like a cross between, I guess, like a city government and a county government. S- sometimes the area covered is much larger than the actual town. Sometimes it isn't. But they have huge buzz- budgets. To give you an idea, the largest government budget in Brazil is the federal government. The second largest is Sao Paulo state. It has a population of 43 million and a GDP comparable with that of Belgium. You know, the third biggest uh, government budget in Brazil is the city of Sao Paulo it's bigger than all the other state governments and so you can imagine the the fights going on for control over those payrolls you know of uh, um, those budgets and all of that stuff that are going on and also uh, big city mayor's offices are usually used as kind of like a trampoline to insert into national politics and like uh, winning the mayor the mayor's office in a city like Sao Paulo pretty much automatically gets people talking about whether you're going to run for president or not. You know, so I guess it's a little bit different. I think in the U.S., people look more like senators, right? So is this an
0: opportunity then for alternative parties to come to power? Is that why the municipal elections are uh, important, that they give an entree to power for alternative parties that may not have any support or may not have even existed prior to that election?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's there's more, I guess, plurality in terms of parties in Brazil, much more than in the U.S. It's not just a duopoly. Yeah, And so there's always new parties coming up. Most of the time, uh, it's just different elite factions changing their names, you know, local elites. I mean, every four years, someone tries to start a new fake left party. You know, the most recent one is called Solidarity You know, it was started by a union leader who went on to vote in favor of the coup against Dilma Rousseff (laughs) and the Workers' Party, you know, Mm -hmm. siphoning off a few, you know, union members. So there's always this jockeying around. There's always uh, there's a new party called the Union Party created on the, you know, the far vanguard left this year. Didn't I don't think they won anything. But the thing is, if you get a certain amount of votes and things, then you can start qualifying for uh government financial assistance to the parties because uh once you have a party registered and you reach a certain amount of popularity if you can elect someone then you start getting free commercial airtime during election season it gets really interesting i think it's much better you don't need nearly as much money to win an election in brazil as you do in the us because you get free airtime you know and the amount of airtime you get is in accordance with how many city councilors you have elected you know how many aldermen or whatever so it's it's a totally different system and it's really interesting. There's a lot more parties, but, you know, there's also this constant pressure internationally and nationally for the last 15 years for people to uh, act like there's a new alternative on the left to the PT, which is blown out of proportion. They're still by far the biggest player in town. And the the only party really that's managed to push through really innovative Uh, Socialist democracy deepening technologies and things like participatory budgeting, which have been replicated all over the world, you know, even in some wards in Chicago.
0: That's the thing. I I was kind of curious about that because you were tweeting yesterday that it seems like the United States government really wants and the, you know, uh, you talk about how the neoliberal Clintonites, they were pushing for the PSDB. You say that that's the U.S. DNC's favorite neoliberal choice. You mentioned how uh, there are some academics and journalists who believe that the PSOL is the actual left, not the PT. Why do you think there's such a desire here in the United States by the Democratic Party or bipartisan support for, uh, or I should say, opposition to the PT being the left in Brazil? Why does the United States not want the PT to be the left, the Workers' Party, to be the left in Brazil?
2: Well, Chuck, first of all, the PT is in favor of maintaining national control over strategic industries and natural resources. A strong state petroleum company. you know free public university education, state control over you know different sectors of the economy, the electrical grid, the water, and things like that that all of the international corporations are fighting to privatize. Secondly, geopolitically, the PT is a true left party. It shows strong solidarity with Palestine, with Venezuela, the PT party president went to the inauguration of Nicolas Maduro last year, you know, and, and what the U.S. would really like, instead of a left party that can hold on to power, as the PT did for four consecutive presidential elections, preventing privatization of the state oil company and things like that, you know, they want a small left that maybe has some more radical rhetoric, kind of like the squad inside of the Democratic Party that can make some noise. And show everybody that the country is really a democracy, but never really threaten power. You know? And and it seems like there's also this tendency for the US US actors like NED, National Endowment for Democracy and things like that, to encourage these kinds of like Trotskyist academic arguments in favor of US geopolitical a- objectives in China or in Syria or you know in other countries around the world, in Venezuela and Nicaragua. So you see. You see on some of these um, so-called vanguard left parties in Latin America, you see a lot of criticism against the main left party, uh, but you see this kind of like ideological convergence with the U.S. State Department on Venezuela and things like that, or on Bolivia. I mean, there was a lot of um, fake vanguard leftists trying to portray Evo Morales as an environmental destroyer during the lead up to the coup there, for example, which is absolutely absurd. You know, he gave Mother Earth constitutional rights as a person when he it's the first time any country's ever done that. So I mean you see you see this uh, basically, I mean, I'm sure you remember like Warren Zivon and lawyers, guns and money and all that stuff. The, Latin America is a backyard of all kinds of the most sleazy, corporate uh, predatory behavior labor rights violations regime changes sponsored by u.s companies the u.s government and it has been you know for over 100 years the uh, harvard's latin america review counted 44 u.s sponsored coups in the 100 year period before 1994 that's like one every two years or something those are only the successful ones and they you know they keep going now uh, there's a big destabilization effort in mexico they're trying to destabilize argentina You know, I don't know how Bolivia managed to take back control, but they did. But there's a part of Bolivia that's trying to, uh, Santa Cruz province is trying to destroy the new government there. So there's always this constant imperialist takeover attempt going on. And it's reflected in the political life, you know, and and so even though the PT might not meet all of the um, check boxes for like some Brooklyn hipster, self-declared vanguard Vanguard leftist on every issue, they they threaten U.S. economic interests because they don't believe in just giving unfettered access to the natural resources to American companies. So it would seem then that
0: all of the elections that Brazil has are still about imperialism and colonialism, I was going to ask you, were these elections about privatization versus nationalization? But more so, do you think that all of the last 20, 30 years maybe of Brazil's elections have been about a referendum on neoliberalism? Is that what it really boils down to? Or am I still missing the mark a little bit?
2: Oh, Okay. okay. Um, first of all, I don't want to like downplay the actions of local elites too, right? Like the big descendants of the slave owners, you know, controlling big swaths of land in the countryside. But they're middlemen on the international supply, commodity supply chain, providing companies like Cargill with their things. But they're important political political actors, too. As far as like referendum on neoliberalism, that was the election of Lula. That's the referendum on neoliberalism was four consecutive anti-neoliberal candidates elected to the presidency for the PT that culminated with a coup d'etat which has now been proven without a doubt to have been sponsored by the U.S. Department of Justice and FBI, and the insertion of super America-friendly, illegitimate president and fascist Jair Bolsonaro in power. You know, that, so there was no way for the neoliberals to take control back, right, without a coup. They gave up on the electoral process in 2014 when Ercio Neves, lost his election bid as uh david axelrod's former pr company was in brazil helping him on his social media campaigns and things like that And he had a lot of support from actors in the democratic party as well so that was that was like the last time they were like oh let's give neoliberalism a chance an electoral chance these local elections um because of the nature of city governments and things like that city government doesn't really have as much power to turn over that much nat- natural resource, they can they can privatize uh, city companies. And in the big cities, corporate corporations have big interests in like you know uh, public-private partnerships. Like turning, for example, the center-right government in São Paulo turned its public preschool system over to public-private partnerships. You know, and there are things like that. But no, but they don't have the power to like hand over natural resources to a foreign company. They can't say, a city government can't tell Exxon that it can come in and drill on its territory, you know. But there are are like financial interests and big business interests, many of which are foreign as well in taking control of these city governments.
0: So this is the third time you've been on the show since the coronavirus outbreak. As Reuters reported late last week, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro said that he will not take a coronavirus vaccine, the latest in a series of statements he has made expressing skepticism toward coronavirus vaccination (sighs) programs. He says, I'm telling you, I'm not going to take it. It's my right. Why? And then you point out that uh, this importance, this kind of connection between Bolsonaro and Trump and his unwillingness to believe that Trump actually lost the election. He does not believe that Joe Biden won. He believes that election was rigged. So what impact does Trump's loss have on Bolsonaro, if any? How does that affect the way the Brazilian people view Bolsonaro when Trump loses?
2: Chuck, the first impact is that his coalition was pummeled yesterday. Absolutely pummeled. They only got two cities out of the 57 largest cities in Brazil. All right? That's because his support is fading now. Contrary to a false media narrative that's been promoted in the New York Times and, uh, and in BBC based on four month old poll data, where he had a minor spike because of some COVID like financial aid program he implemented, his support is chipping away. He's more and more isolated. China is going after them now, you know, like China, which is normally a pretty diplomatic and polite country in terms of uh, ambassador relations and stuff. The ambassador re- released this letter just ripping Bolsonaro's son, a congressman, for anti for spreading anti-China rhetoric. At the same time that, you know, Biden is giving some signals, at least, he's definitely not going to maintain this kind of like special relationship with Biden. Uh, with Bolsonaro that Trump had, you know, so he's becoming more and more isolated. And so he's saying crazier and crazier things. Now, regarding the vaccine, it's obvious he made an idiotic move of offering 300 million dollars to Oxford, AstraZeneca for this virus, uh, for this vaccine to use in the public health system with no guarantee that they'd get the money back if it didn't work, you know, so he probably doesn't want to take it because he's afraid it doesn't work. And he's using anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories and stuff, but he's the one who's bringing it here. Luckily for us, the state governors are making deals on their own vaccines. And here in Sao Paulo, we have this wonderful public health institute called Instituto Butantan, which is the institute that invented um, poisonous snake antivenom in the 1930s, and it manufactures vaccines for the state public health system. They made a small, like $70 million deal with a Chinese company called, uh, uh, where is it? I have it written down here. Well, um, CoronaVac and they've already gotten, it's already been through stage three and they've, you know, they've got 120,000 doses here and it, the deal involves technology transfer of intellectual property rights and the ability for the public health system to manufacture the vaccine. So. you know, luckily, we have some governors, I think it's a similar situation to the United States, really, you know, like we have some governors who, are, who care, and some who are using conspiracy theories to prop up their, you know, popularity or something like that. But luckily, we have a few who are like trying to fight the president. But basically, it's a shit show, just like the United States, it's just like uh, Bolsonaro followed Trump's lead. And that's what we have now 170,000 dead. You know, because I mean, we could have we could have followed a serious country's lead. And so even though I don't have a lot of hope for Biden at all, you know, I think in terms of relationship between Brazil and um, and the U.S., Biden presidency is going to improve some things in Brazil, just not because Biden's not interested in accessing all of Brazil's natural resources, but. It's going to force Bolsonaro to tone down all of his craziness, you know, and, or be isolated further and further as his coalition falls apart. So I was I'm like moderately happy. <laughs> I, I know never, it's hard to say. It. I never Almost I right. was going to say
0: I never thought I'd hear the words from Brian Muir, I'm moderately happy about Joe, Joe Biden. Yeah. One of the things that you were just saying. You know, it just made me think about how much the intellectual property rights are becoming an, an obstacle to distributing a vaccine to the world, which is just a frightening thought. But how how popular is the anti mask movement? How how did Bolsonaro have success in the past before yeah. these elections in being an anti masker in being yeah. somebody who's against the vaccine? Was he having success prior to these this uh, set of elections?
2: It's like, it's really just so much like Trump. He's just got this core following of wackos and smaller than Trump percentage wise. You know, maybe in Brazil, maybe like 20% of the population is just fanatically pro-Bolsonaro and another 15% are like, ah, he's okay, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, his his, his real popularity rates around 30, approval rates around 35% within, but even among people who like don't follow him that much, a lot of like maybe people who are, don't have that much formal education and things like they see the president going around saying that masks aren't necessary and things like that. And they, they were, you know, they relax on their standards here, here in Sao Paulo, there's a big like COVID super spreader event going on almost every day below my house on the square in front of my house, with all these people drinking with no masks on and stuff. And, and you have to put on a mask to get on the train or the, bus, but that's city government regulation. It's not coming from Bolsonaro. So I would say that his anti-mask campaign was successful. And the uh, gauge of that success, uh, and I mean this in the most negative way possible, is the death toll. You know, 170,000 in a country of 220 million people. So I guess in his mind, it's a success. If his plan was to call the elderly or something,
0: so, uh, Reuters also reported the Brazilian president expressed doubts about Brazil's current election vo- electronic voting system, which he has suggested is vulnerable to fraud, just like Trump has. He has urged the country to go back to a paper ballot system for the 2022 presidential election. Has there been any evidence of anything potentially corrupt happening in either of these two November elections in Brazil? And do you believe... Casting doubt on the U.S. vote, which is what uh, Jair Bolsonaro has also done, is a political strategy to already cast doubt on the next presidential election in Brazil.
2: That's it. You just nailed it. That's what that's all it's about. The voting system in Brazil is vastly superior to that of the United States. We have direct elections. We don't have a uh, electoral college in which people living in small states have more power than people in big states. And, uh, they, they have this kind of like electronic urn system, you know, that where they don't connect, they can't connect the different ballot electronic ballot boxes to each other. So they all have to be counted, you know, separately, which makes it really hard to hack. Like at the most, you could hack into one ballot electronic ballot box. There's no way of like accessing the system all at once. So really good system, like to give you an idea in November fifteenth, we had five thousand four hundred and seventy mayoral elections, and people started really complaining, like, "What's going on? It's a conspiracy. The results aren't in yet." At eight thirty p.m., when the when the polls closed at five, and so all the results were in by ten p.m. from five thousand four hundred and seventy elections, including city council and mayors' elections. You know, uh, and uh, yesterday the results were in by. 8 p.m., three hours after polls closed. So I think, you know, I think it's just really silly for Bolsonaro to be saying, oh, we have to go back to paper. It just doesn't make any sense. If, of course, was there corruption? Of course, there's always some kind of corruption going on in city elections. I mean, as a native Chicagoan, you know, <laughs> I can't. I mean, like there in Sao Paulo, there was an instance of um, some former politician handing out free food and telling people to vote for uh, Bruno Kovacs. And in Porto Alegre, the biggest local television station announced a fake poll in the name of Datafolia polling agency which put the conservative candidate in the front and then the polling agency said we didn't do a poll in this city, right? But then what was really weird is when the results came in their fake poll was more accurate than the real polls. (laughs) So what...
0: (sighs) How much damage do you think, or what do you think is the impact of the legitimacy of, I don't know, democracies globally, places that call themselves democracies globally at least, uh, by President Trump refusing to concede? I think a lot of people here in the United States just think it's a silly political game between the Democrats and the Republicans, and they may not realize that it it might have some sort of global worldwide impact on democracy in general. What kind of impact do you think Trump not conceding is having on the people of Brazil?
2: I think it has more to do with the US. I think it's just like everyone in the rest of the world is like, oh yeah, like typical third world despot. (laughs) The US must be a third world country now. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. Finally. (laughs) You know. I mean, I and I use the third world. I know third world is accepted in some circles and not in others, but you know, developing world or whatever. Um but But yeah, I mean, like, okay, so that's something you would expect to see in some, you know, super uh, destabilized country with a greedy local elites running it. But do you think do
0: you think that delegitimizes democracy though?
2: I think the U.S. is the biggest delegitimizer of democracy. Obama delegitimized democracy when he uh, attacked Libya. you know, the Obama administration, when it held a coup in Honduras, Paraguay, and, and Brazil, and the U.S. Department of Justice removed the leading presidential candidate in the 2018 election so that Bolsonaro could win, that's the kind of stuff the U.S. does that deleg- delegitimizes democracy. You know, Trump's uh, sending mercenaries to Venezuela, and this, you know, Trump-backed coup. I don't want to act like I'm playing favorites about shitty U.S. leaders here. Trump backed the coup in uh, in, in Bolivia and things like that that's what delegitimizes democracy trump having a tantrum up there i think most people in the rest of the world are just like well finally the us is getting what it deserves
0: <laughs> cuz so, this
2: is what it does everywhere else
0: yeah and uh, you know we're always so upset when uh, people interfere in our elections because we've never interfered in any other oh, country's yeah, election right.
2: <laughs> so uh, in the 19 i guess at one point in the ni- in the teens In Mexico, they got so sick of U.S. invasions that both sides of the Mexican Civil War officially asked President Wilson to stop invading.
0: (laughs) Jesus. So The Guardian reported following those earlier mid-November elections, following the first round of elections, in Sao Paulo, Bolsonaro's choice, Celso Russomano was trounced by the center-right incumbent Bruno Covas and a rising left-wing star called Guilherme Boulos The Guardian quotes the left-wing Boulos saying We have beaten Bolsonaro We have beaten his project of hatred, backwardness And lies that tried to take root In the city of Sao Paulo But how likely Would have that been in Sao Paulo Does Sao Paulo and do any of these Larger cities, do they change What party is ruling the, Or is in char- has been elected To power within those cities Or is a place like Sao Paulo always voting for the left-wing person, and they never vote for the right-wing person. How much does it vary from election to election?
2: Sao Paulo's been, you know, the state, Sao Paulo's been ruled by the golden party of the U.S. Democratic Party, the PSDB, for like 25 years now, but the city bounces back and forth between parties. I mean, the PT's had the mayor's office three times in the last 25 years, there's been a couple of different right-wing parties and the, um, the Socialist Party, which is ironically center-right in Sao Paulo. So, yeah, there, there is, you know, change of hands. And so, yeah, I mean, and people were worried about this guy, Russo Mano. Like, he, he initially was polling in first place, right? Because, and one of the reasons for that is because the current mayor has cancer. You know, he has, like, really bad cancer and so people were thinking maybe he's going to be weak or something like that and so rusomana was pulling it first and then bolsonaro came and like publicly endorsed him and the next day he dropped 10 points in the polls after receiving bolsonaro's endorsement and that's the kind of thing that's got bolsonaro really worried now you know and then rusomana didn't even make it into the top 3 candidates after Paul, starting the and election seasons are very short in Brazil. You know, it's like one month. So he started election season, the one-month election season, in first place and finished fourth after Bolsonaro endorsed him. You know, so that this kind of thing do- is relevant. You know, it does matter. And it, and B- Bolus is correct in saying that this was a big loss. You know, against Bolsonaro's hate and things like that. Even if the ultimate winner is this like center-right, you know, Ram Emanuel. Type. Although I have to say, the center right in Brazil is farther left wing than Ram Emanuel. <laughs> He's not trying to make charter schools or something, at least.
0: So, Covas cool. and Bulos, they met in one of the runoff elections, as you're saying this weekend, and we'll get yeah. to what happened in that vote in a moment. But let's—I want to go to Rio first. In Rio, yeah. as the Guardian reported also last week, uh, prior to the vote, they uh, write that. Tarcisio Mota is one of Rio's best-known lefties, but when the city elects its new leader, he'll be voting for the candidate from the right. The Guardian describes Mota as the socialist counselor of one of millions of exasperated locals desperate to evict the neo Pentecostal Bishop Marcelo Crivea from City Hall after what is widely regarded as a dismal four year reign as the mayor of Rio. And they quote Mota saying, We've got a mayor who's an enemy of the city and this can't go on. It's ludicrous. That's in reference to the current mayor again, neo Pentecostal Bishop Marcelo Crivea, uh, who was elected in 2016. And what The Guardian says was a backlash against the left. They also cite Mota saying, I'll vote for. Eduardo Pais, and I'll oppose him from day one, claiming Crivella's authoritarian, fundamentalist, anti-Rio project had to be stopped. This city doesn't deserve this government. Our vote is to veto Crivella. And you posted on social media that I that you had already written a book about the legal horrors the prefecture of Pais. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at least I it, talked
2: about it on This Is How, like, y- yeah, six years ago.
0: Exactly. But you're right, that it, but at least it doesn't want to destroy Carnival and all manifestations of African culture in Rio in the name of a false crypto fascist and capitalist image of jesus so was crevea was the mayor of rio representing white supremacist evangelical christian nationalism and is that a popular movement within rio or brazil in general
2: yeah Yeah, it's pretty i mean this this religion he's a so-called bishop of is the universal kingdom of god they have it in chicago i think in spanish-speaking neighborhoods and uh you know uh, they've got millions of followers in, in Brazil, and Rio de Janeiro is the most evangelical state in in Brazil. Uh, now, the Guardian, the Guardian journalists do not even vaguely understand city politics in Brazil. It's really complicated. You know, I was on the National Urban Reform Forum Directorate for seven years because I was a boss at ActionAid at the time, and I got a slot for the NGO sector or something. It took me three years just to figure out what that forum did as I was on its directorate. You know, that's how confusing city <laughs> politics are. So the, 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 um, what The Guardian is is wrong about from, from the bat is that, that Crivella's election was a rejection of the left. Rio de Janeiro has never had a left-wing mayor, not even a center-left mayor. You know, you would think the Guardian would know that. So that isn't really what was going on. Crivello is just Bolsonaro's guy. Now, and, and it's true, like Eduardo Paes is horrible. He's, a, he's connected to the militias, just like Bolsonaro, just like Crivello and all this. But, you know, but he's someone who loves samba, loves carnival, loves capoeira, and doesn't have any problems with Afro-Brazilian religions, which are similar to Santeria and things like that. Whereas... Cravella made the historically suicidal move of declaring war against Carnival, which has brought down several mayors of Rio de Janeiro in the last 200 years. Like, no mayor has ever successfully... It's like like a politician saying they're going to stop prostitution or marijuana use as a campaign promise. Like, there's no way. They can't... So. Despite the rising number of evangelical Christians in Brazil and everything, I'm just happy that I I view the election in Rio as a referendum against this kind of like evangelical hatred against, you know, non-white cultures. And uh, even though Eduardo Paes kind of sucks, he's going to invite some people from the left into his coalition government. And it's it's a lesser of evil situation. But. I think everyone in Rio de Janeiro just views it as a huge victory. And Pais didn't just win; he won, you know, by a huge margin, like seventy to thirty, in the final round yesterday. So everyone's just breathing. Like, like I have friends who dressed up like Afro-Brazilian deities to go to the voting polls. <laughs> wow! Wow! <in> that <laughs> protest and things like that. Like that. So I think in that sense, it's really beautiful. And and just another quick slap at the Guardian. They, they interviewed this guy, Tarsusio Mouto, why? Because he's from the tiny Trotskyist faction of the PSOL party, which is the le, the real left, according to the Guardian, that will never take power, when one of the most famous and legendary Brazilian politicians of all times, the first Afro-Brazilian governor and senator, uh, Benita da Silva, ran for Merrigan for the PT this year, you know, and came she came in third but. Uh, she's a legendary politician. You'd think they would want to talk to her instead of some guy who got like two percent in the last city council election or something, but they just ghost the PT at the Guardian. They just they just completely ignore the PT. They try to and then the, the most annoying thing is they support all of the coups in Latin America, but then the, when they're when their journalists are drinking with people in the bars and stuff, they all act like they're leftists because they support this tiny little party, the PSOL, which has, you know, has some great politicians in it, but it's not, but that's not the reason why Guardian supports them.
0: But you were saying, actually you were tweeting About the PSOL and How they have been claiming that They are the real left party, not the yeah. PT Not the workers party, and you said that they, they won an election in one of the mayor races And you said now it's their opportunity To prove that they are As left as the PT is Or can be the real left in Brazil What do you think that likelihood is? Do you think this is a bait and switch, or do you think that they Actually no, are? I think- is the, I guess my Bigger question, Brian, is yeah. is the whole Country, do you think that all of politics politics is moving toward the left and away from Bolsonaro.
2: I think, okay, you act like, asked like five different questions. Of
0: course I, I did. That's how I do uh, it, Brian.
2: Like, I know we're talking about a pr- very provincial city, Belen, you know, which is, could be almost like Boston or something that has its own long pr- political traditions. This is when the, the PSOL has just, taken yeah, over. The yeah. The mayor from the PSOL who was just elected is two time former mayor from the PT and his vice running mate was from the PT. So first of all, it's a coalition, petit government, and I think they're gonna do pretty good. I'm looking forwards to it. Beleng has a long history of really good, innovative, you know, left wing democracy deepening politics where they they set up like citizens councils to oversee the budget and you know oversee different parts of public policy, and so I'm ho- I'm really hoping that it turns out good, but You know, uh, at that point, I'll start treating them as, you know, like a serious party and not just what Gramsci used to call parties of, like, moral criticism, but just sit around criticizing everybody but never manage to take power.
0: Do you you have hope for this PSOL-PT alliance? Do you think that 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 could be good for the PT as well as for the PSOL?
2: Chuck, they've always been aligned together. You know, I mean the pistol just broke it's just a splinter party from the PT that splintered off fifteen years ago over an argument. They always like if you look at them in Congress and the Senate, well they have they have, you know, like seven or maybe ten congressmen right now compared to like fifty-five for the PT. They vote together in Congress ninety-nine point nine percent of the time. It's not even like the party itself that's the issue, it's the followers who go around saying that they're farther left than the people in the PT or something. You know, it's just, it's silly. It's just really silly. Like, the, Like I'll give you an idea. They managed to convince Jacobin that they're the real left party. So for 38 consecutive articles in Jacobin during the coup period, uh, they were just like praising the PSOL and following the PSOL's party line that they were the real left party, that the PT is neoliberal, which is silly. You know, like it, it's, it's just absolutely silly that you would call the Lula government neoliberal. It doesn't even, it's just outrageous. So the,
0: <laughs> the, the Guardian also quoted Mota, and I know you have problems with him, but it, it just. No, I
2: don't, I don't, he's okay, Chuck. Yeah. I don't mean to badmouth Mota. I'm just saying they could have spoken to like a more important local politician on this issue, you know? Right. He's a super nice guy.
0: But he says that uh, Rio has become a much sadder place in these last four years. Having a city hall that seems not to like the city, who tries to alter the city's very essence and doesn't respect Rio's diversity, has made things so much gloomier. Now, I know you've been to Rio many times in the last four years, and you used to live in Rio. Have you noticed that it's become a gloomier place?
2: Yeah, uh, but I kind of like looked at that. Like in Rio, you have huge parts of the city that just, they exist almost like outside of the government. They're just controlled by different organized crime factions that deliver services and things like that. I interpreted, now he might be right. He's right in a way, I'm sure. I kind of interpreted it as the fact that the city and state governments went bankrupt as as causing more gloom than Crivella saying, you know, homophobic and sexist things like that. Because I felt like, the resistance against him was kind of uh, positive, you know, like he, I don't know. I definitely, he caused some gloom in the city and I'm glad to see him go. But the fact of the matter is the Olympics bankrupted that city and the, the drop in petroleum prices around the world bankrupted the state because it's a big petroleum producer. And so they're having serious problems like delivering the most basic public health and you know, education, and things like that. I think the real gloom in Rio is because of these economic problems. And that Crivella was just like some icing on the cake of just having a complete asshole, you know, like Reverend Ernest Angeley type faith healing, uh, homophobic, racist, shooting his mouth off from the mayor's pulpit for four years.
0: So more than a referendum on neoliberalism, which you've already said uh, had already taken place, more than a referendum on even Bolsonaro, more than a referendum on coronavirus, do you think the, the bottom line of the, the election decision-making process was the economy?
2: Not at all. <laughs> I, I don't think uh, – it, and it should like, have been, but I don't think it was <laughs> – I think I think it's more like uh, people are fed up with Bolsonaro. It's more like, and the reason they're fed up with Bolsonaro, it's not just economic. It's everything. It's just this um, incompetence. You know, it's it's the co. You know, it's COVID. It's the way he's handling COVID. Um, the economy hasn't nosedived as much in Brazil as it has in the U.S. I don't think, and and in municipal elections city elections, I, I think in Rio, if the economy were actually a factor in the Rio de Janeiro election, then Eduardo Paes wouldn't have been such a strong candidate, because he was the mayor that bankrupted the city during the Olympics.
0: You also tweeted that Brazilian See president... See
2: it's, I mean, it's complicated. I hope everything I'm saying makes sense, because... It's so crazy, city politics.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it's complicated, but I think that the overall, I, you're giving a very good perspective of it, sir. You uh, tweeted Brazilian President Bolsonaro's coalition lost big last night. So did the U.S. Democratic National Com- uh, Coalition's uh, favorite neoliberals, the PSDB. That's the Socialist Democratic Party. So was this, was the vote? That happened over the past weekend. Was this a loss for the U.S. Democratic Party? Is Bolsonaro losing a loss for the U.S. in Brazil?
2: I think it's a loss for the Republican Party. I think that the Democratic Party is regrouping and trying to figure out what other shitty right wing neoliberal parties that embrace, you know, uh, gender equity that they can support because their darling party is just falling apart so I don't I don't I don't think that uh, I think the big loser in this whole process is bolsonaro you know the Democratics are gonna gain a little bit you know because the traditional center right in Brazil which is the some of the parties that made the biggest gains are like the M um, the Dem Party, which was the official party during the military dictatorship, which has long ties to the U.S. government as well. You know, these parties are pretty subservient to the United States. So in, in, in general, the Democrats, I think, are helped by this outcome. And I feel like Trump losing the election probably affected this outcome, too, because I feel like Bolsonaro spent the last couple of years just lying to everybody that everyone in America loved Donald Trump and that anybody who said that Donald Trump wasn't popular in the US was a communist. You know, that if, if I, as an American citizen in Brazil, would go on a TV program and say that a lot of people I know don't like Trump, I would be attacked for lying, for spreading fake news. And so his narrative about Trump crumbled, you know? And I think that chipped away I think that made the difference in a lot of really close races where his candidates, who were all like retired neo fascist military police colonels from the dictatorship era, were running neck and neck with like center right or center left candidates. So I think really, like, I think uh, it's very fun to be nihilistic and say there's absolutely no difference between the Democrats and Republicans for the rest of the world. And in a lot of places, I don't think there is much. But in this specific situation in Brazil, I think Trump getting voted out is a positive thing. It's given more enthusiasm to the LGBT community, you know, that was really under attack. And um, it's just shown people that their president's been lying to them for the last four years. Some people might have been believing everything Bolsonaro said. So I I think this couple points, percentage points of popularity that he lost when Trump Got voted out of office, affected this election cycle, and benefited everybody really. Even Please. if it's just the difference between like a you know fucking Lori Lightfoot type mayor in Rio de Janeiro, as opposed to like a far right evangelical freak. <laughs>
0: We have been speaking with correspondent Brian Mir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telleser. He is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telleser English's news program from the South. Brian, it is always great to hear from you. And you did clear up these, uh, to the extent that you can in a 35, 40 minute interview, uh, Uh, the structure and history of municipal elections in brazil so thank you very much always great to hear from you have a great rest of 2020 and if i don't hear from you before the end of the year happy new year and i hope 2021 is much better for you as well as everybody
2: well, else. let's make a pledge chuck next year i'm going to do my best to have a beer with you at carrie's lounge
0: i'm hoping so i'm hoping you can be here for the 25th anniversary party next year and i'm going to do everything i can to make it so you are here sir
2: all right, I will too. Take, all right. an easy Take
0: care, Brian. <sighs> Live from Lake Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is Hell. Daphne, can you please remind us what is this week's question from hell and can you share with us how listeners are answering so far?
1: This week's question from hell is what's the smart money play in twenty twenty one? Garrett L says investing in caterpillar for all the mass grave digging
0: <laughs>
1: dan k refrigerated trucks <laughs> warren l plastic handguns and ovaltine uh, wow. G- garrett s machete swords and other types of large close-range combat blades
0: Wow, I'm this is getting so real dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew the question from hell could be so depressing?
1: <laughs> yeah, Wally R. Rubbles and solar-powered Maneki-neko figures. Nice, Max I. There's a pretty big hint in this post. Oh, there's an image um that Alex uh, posted that says funeral services <laughs> nice, so
2: nice.
1: he started it <laughs> Jack B Iraqi diner and Trump commemorative coins Jeez. oh Dinar sorry Kurt e uh, funeral homes and opiate producers chase C marrying then divorcing Jeff Bezos personal <laughs> favorite
0: that is good
1: Adam K putting it all into Dogecoin. Dogecoin? Dogecoin. Dogecoin? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Chris C. Medical Psilocybin psilocybin Mushrooms.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm I'm for that.
1: (laughs) Mark A. Oh, yeah. Definitely the stock for the conglomerate, which owns Batesville Casket Company in Batesville, Indiana.
0: (laughs) Specifically, the Batesville, Indiana Casket (laughs) Company.
1: (laughs) Also a good place to sub stop for a German restaurant diner on the way to Cincinnati in non pandemic days. I hope they are open after the pandemic. Oh, (laughs) Oh, nice. Uh, Adam A, commodified momentary reprieves from crushing. Sorry. Commodified momentary reprieves from soul crushing existential despair. Also putting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mark A again, Minus 60-degree freezers. No,
0: oh, there's a good point. Sub-zero freezers should be a good thing to invest in right now.
1: Those were the answers for what's the smart money play in 2021.
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And by the way, if any of you are thinking, oh, drive through funeral homes, that's a great idea because of COVID. That way people can't – yeah, those have been around for about 30 years now, so – Maybe we'll have a resurgence of drive-through funeral homes. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either myself or AlexChuck at This Is Hell.com. Alex at This Is Hell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on December third, nineteen seventy-nine. Forty-one years ago, this Thursday, some eight. 1000 fans were gathered outside Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati to attend a concert by British rock band The Who and this will not end well in fact it will end with a very moving episode of WKRP in Cincinnati which means it will definitely not end well most of the 18000 plus tickets sold for the show were general admission first come first served for Unassigned seats, which is always problematic and always leads to violence, as the crowd waited impatiently outside the venue, they could hear the who inside doing a late sound check. Apparently, some concert goers mistakenly thought the show had begun without everyone being admitted, and the crowd began angrily pressing forward and I did not know this whole disaster was caused by a misinterpreted sound check by the who. In all the confusion, dozens of people were knocked over, trampled, and injured. Eleven people were killed, dying of suffocation, but most of the crowd eventually got inside and grabbed unreserved seats. The concert went ahead as planned, and members of the Who were not told about the fatal disaster until after the show was over, because they probably would have canceled it otherwise. And money talks. The audience also obviously did not know, however... How you would not know that 11 people have died at a concert that you're attending is beyond me. You'd think you'd notice ambulances, maybe paramedics. Uh, Audience goers said they had no clue what had happened until they heard the news on the radio on their way home. Or not until the next day. Imagine going to a concert, having a great time, seeing a band that you've been wanting to see for a really long time, waking up the next morning with some of that sheer bliss still lingering, And you find out while you were having the time of your life, people were losing their lives. That had to be the worst hangover ever in rotten history. December 4th, 1872, 148 years ago this Friday in the North Atlantic Ocean, east of the Azores Archipelago, Captain David Morehouse of the Canadian merchant Brig de Gratia, was alerted to the presence of another ship about six miles away. As his own ship grew closer, Morehouse recognized the ship as, the other vessel, as the Mary Celeste, an American ship captained by his friend Benjamin Briggs. And this is going to get really creepy really quick if you don't know the story of the Mary Celeste. Both ships had sailed from New York Harbor, loaded with cargo bound for Genoa, Italy. The Mary Celeste had departed a week before the Canadian ship with 10 people aboard the Mary Celeste, including Captain Briggs and his wife and daughter. Captain Morehouse from the other ship, the De Gracia. he signals the Mary Celeste, but there's no response whatsoever when he comes across the ship. So he ordered two of his men to go over in a small boat for a closer look at the Mary Celeste. They found the ship adrift and abandoned. The sails were in disorder, and some seawater had collected in the hold, but the ship was otherwise in decent condition. The cargo was intact, plenty of food was aboard, and items were stowed in their normal places, except that the only lifeboat was missing. The last entry in the ship's log was dated nine days earlier, and it indicated nothing unusual. Captain Morehouse sent three of his men to take over the derelict Mary Celeste and get it back in ship shape, get it in trim, and both ships made it to Gibraltar. Despite allegations of foul play and a thorough search for evidence, a court inquiry failed to establish any cause for the American ship's abandonment. No trace of the Mary Celeste's crew and passengers was ever found. That's Rotten and Really Creepy History and This Is Hell. Daphne, can you please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time here at ThisIsHell.com?
1: Tomorrow, historian Lucy Dellap on her new book, Feminisms, A Global History.
0: I'm very, very intimidated by this, uh, Daphne, because this, uh, she's the deputy chair of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. Wow, good yeah. for her. Yeah, good for, hey, by the way, what is what are you studying at Northwestern, and why have I never asked you before?
1: <laughs> I can't answer the second one, but uh, <laughs> a MFA in theater design.
0: Oh, wait, I did know that. Yeah. Yes, we had that discussion when your sister was here. Yeah. Yes, now I remember. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, and very forgetful, apparently. Producing today's show is Daphne Augustin. Thanks to Daphne for doing a great job with The Hangover Cure and producing today's show. Also, thanks to Brian Muir for returning to This Is Hell. And thanks to Ivar for suggesting we have Brian back on for an update from Brazil. Also, thanks to Alex for booking today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History.